Thank you. That's kind. Good morning. Great to see you and be back with you. Um, yeah, two weeks ago, uh, Jill and I were celebrating our 26th wedding anniversary. She has hung in there a long time. And then uh, one of you gave me whatever that death stuff is that's going around. So I was down last week, but it's great to be back with you uh, this morning. We're going to finish out uh, over the next two weeks, so today and next Sunday, Lord willing, the, uh, the end of Mark. It's been a great year together. I know many of us are not from here, and so we hit the holidays, and it's, uh, this becomes rather ghostly of a town. People scatter all over the place, so if you're traveling, just want to go ahead and tell you Merry Christmas, and it's been a really wonderful year of ministry together, growing in the Lord, welcoming in so many new people into our church family. So thank you for all that you've uh, done in terms of time and service and uh, giving and been a really, really great, healthy, fruitful year. So praise God for that. Looking forward to the next one. Um, Every generation recalls uh, certain events as defining moments. For my parents' generation, it was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. For my generation, it was uh, when the planes hit the Twin Towers, 9-11. I imagine for those of you who are younger than me, you will recall uh, the, the day Tom Hanks announced he had COVID, and the NBA canceled Rudy Gobert's rubbing of all the microphones. Turned out he had COVID. The day that it sort of fell and we realized, oh, life's not going to be the same again. Imagine it'll be that day. It's just a fact that we all remember collectively certain moments in such a way and with such clarity that Decades after those events, we can remember those days as though they were yesterday. Today, we reach an event in Mark that is of such significance that to call it a defining moment would be a grotesque understatement because it's not merely the generation in which it occurred that know it to be a prominent moment. It is rather the entire cosmos forever should remember this moment as the moment of human history. I'm speaking, of course, about the dying and the death of Jesus Christ. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, and we'll look together this morning at the dying, the death, and the burial of Jesus you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue one, and we're on page 496, 497 or so in those Bibles, and I'll read for us starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling 
Elijah. If you drop the O from Eloi, then it sounds like Elijah. So this crowd that should have known what was going on is so confused that they think he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it up to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This moment is the moment in which we could say nothing more significant has ever or will ever happen again. This is the moment. And as only a Baptist pastor could, I'd love for us to spend the sermon this morning considering this paragraph by zooming in on three specific words that all start with the letter C. First, let's consider the cry, the cry of Jesus on the cross. Second, let's look at the curtain, the curtain that was torn in two. And finally, let's consider the confession of, for bonus, the centurion. Cry, curtain, and confession. Fifteen chapters in, we have finally together reached the paragraph for which the Gospel of Mark was written. Jesus came, you see, principally to die. Principally to be hoisted in the air and die a substitutionary death. Yes, he did many, many, many things in his life. It's taken us the whole year to look at them. But it is his death where we find the focal point of his entire ministry. By doing a deep dive on the cry, the curtain, and the cross, will become all the more familiar with the meaning and the significance and the applicability of the death of Jesus. So first, let's think about the cry. Jesus is hanging on the cross naked and in searing pain. The Romans had perfected this particular form of execution and the way it was brought about namely the positioning of the body on the cross, was designed to bring about maximum discomfort. You see, the body was situated in such a way that you would hang. And in order to take a breath, you would have to pull up on nails that were pierced through your wrists and push up on feet that were also pierced in order that your body would then be positioned in such a way you could take a breath. And because that act of breathing is an automatic response of your body, you don't have to tell yourself to breathe, you just do, then the body would fight in order to take a breath, causing that repeated searing pain over and over and over and over. And it wasn't the pain 
that would kill someone. It wasn't the blood loss. It was that over time, as your body performed that action, hundreds if not thousands of times, you'd reach the point you simply couldn't do it any longer. And then you would suffocate to death. It was awful. And very often, this act of pulling and pushing up would last so long your body just naturally fights to stay alive. It would last so long that a night and into the next day would often pass. As Jesus hung on the cross pulling and pushing to breathe, notice that Mark tells us something of the time. Now, we are people that are in, enslaved to time, at least the three of you who come on time. <laughs> but why does Mark mention the time? Notice he's, he, call, he tells us in verse 33 that it was the sixth hour. That's a, that's a way of referring to noon. From noon to 3 p.m., Jesus struggled for every breath. And at 3 p.m., in a manner that would have shocked, absolutely stunned every onlooker because Jesus had been completely silent, he all of a sudden burst out with a cry. What he said is gibberish to us because it's Aramaic, Jesus' mother tongue, what he would have grown up learning to speak in the home. Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Thankfully, Mark translates that for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No more shocking words ever fell from Jesus' lips. Because Jesus, for all eternity, had known perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit, a community so tightly bound together that they form one God. And yet, in that moment, something happened that caused Jesus to not merely feel forsaken, but to be forsaken. Why that anguished cry? What did that cry mean? To get even a small sense of what Jesus went through, we have to answer that question. Mark gives us two major clues. First, it's important that we note that that cry wasn't the first time those words had ever been spoken. In fact, they're a direct quote from Psalm 22. Earlier this morning, we confessed together something of the end of Psalm 22, which ends rather uh, confidently with trust in God. But the beginning of the psalm does not start at all that way. The opening words of Psalm 22 are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus struggled to the max physically, 
spiritually and emotionally. As he was squeezed, what came out were the very words of God. Don't miss that. The word was so close to Jesus' mind and so near and dear to his heart that in his moment of greatest agony, what he uttered was nothing other than God's very word. Friend, when you're pressed, when you're having your most horrid of days, what comes out? I pray that it would be scripture. And if you don't know your Bible like that yet, I, I hope it would be something you would aspire to. That over time, let's say 2023, you would spend every day a little bit of time looking at God's word. And then all day, in and out of appointments, classes, stoplights, that rather than skimming the latest cat video, you would meditate on God's word. So that when you're squeezed in the coming year in ways you're not yet expecting, that what would come out would be scripture. David was originally the composer of Psalm 22. And while we don't know the exact circumstances, we can read that psalm and understand something of what he would have faced. David was, of course, the greatest king in the Old Testament. And yet he wrote as a man in agony. He wrote as a man, at least in that circumstance, who was innocent of whatever charge had been leveled against him. And yet, although he was innocent, a crowd of enemies had surrounded him. And as he looked out at that crowd and he considered himself, he saw that they were unrighteous and in that circumstance he was righteous. And as he suffered, he cried out for help. But he felt forsaken. It was as though, maybe you felt this way, his prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back down. He felt forsaken. And in that forsakenness, in that lack of relief, David cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the righteous sufferer par excellence. And on the cross, Jesus typified the experience that David only shadowed. Because while David felt forsaken, Jesus was. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate innocent one who was surrounded by unrighteous people mocking him, jeering him as he died. That's the first angle through which we need to look at that statement in order to understand what Jesus meant. The second is, oddly enough, through the elements. It's through this little detail that Mark gives that tells us 
the time of day. Now, I mentioned earlier that Mark tells us it was noon. Why does he tell us it was noon? Notice that Mark tells us the time because he wants to emphasize the bizarreness of the absence of light at noon. I mean, this is when the sun is at its peak. Why is it dark? Why is it black? Why is it pitch dark at noon? And notice that the text tells us that blackness lasted not for a mere moment, as though there was a passing eclipse of the sun, but rather for three full hours. Well, church, that darkness helps us further understand Jesus' cry. Because, you see, the darkness is representative of the judgment of God. It's not dark because it's a sad day. It's dark because the judgment of God fell on Jesus. Darkness filled the land because during those three hours, the righteous Jesus became the unrighteous Jesus. The righteousness of Christ was replaced by the unrighteousness of people. And because the unrighteousness of people filled Jesus and thereby he acted as our substitute, the judgment of God fell on earth that day in a way it never had. As the unrighteous one became un, as the righteous one became unrighteous, darkness filled the land. Now Mark sort of implies this. He he tips tips the hat to it by telling us it was dark. But if we don't know what the darkness represents, then we'd miss that. And yet there are many, many other passages of Scripture, of course, that make it explicit what is only implicit here in Mark. I've taken a sample of three of those from three different authors so that you could see it's, it's the broad testimony of the Bible that Jesus on the cross faced the wrath of God for us, that the righteous one became unrighteous, that we might become righteous, that the darkness filled the land because the judgment fell on Christ. Consider, for example, Isaiah 53, perhaps the most famous passage on this in all the scriptures. Isaiah wrote before these events in order to prophesy about them. And he said this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Here it is. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fast forward to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. And then Peter, that one we've seen so many times in Mark. Peter put it this way. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then echoing Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. Now let's attempt to pull these two threads together, this Jesus quoting Psalm 22 in his cry and the darkness, the judgment of God. On the cross, friends, Jesus became our substitute. He took upon himself all the sins of all of God's people forever. He took our place. Gospel centrality is all the rage today. I think every single church that's thoughtful in any way, shape, or form has gospel-centered as one of its defining characteristics. But sometimes I wonder in all the, the, the clamor to say we're gospel-centered, if we actually miss the very essence, the very heart of the gospel. Because if we pull implications of the gospel into the very meaning of the gospel, we may miss what the gospel is. The very heart of the gospel is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Now, you don't have to talk that way. You don't even have to know those words. But the meat of what they mean matters so much. Substitutionary meaning Jesus literally himself took your place. The judgment, the darkness that he received is what we are owed. He gave himself in our stead. He took for us the judgment we deserve. He's our substitute. If you have a substitute teacher, that teacher's in the place of another one. And woe to that substitute. (laughs) Atonement, what is that? It is that Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty. He took the wrath. He met the debt. Such that when Jesus died, he received what we deserved. And not only that, he then gave us what is rightly his. The gospel flowing from the gospel are thousands of blessings, but don't mistake those blessings for the very essence of what it is. It's that Jesus gave himself in our place, absorbing the full weight of the wrath of God. Now, as people who are sinners by nature, we know something of the condemnation of God. We have felt in various forms the sting of having been made to know him and yet been separated from him. And yet that is only the slightest of hints of what Jesus faced. Because 
God's wrath has, has been tempered. It has been constrained and restrained upon humanity. Or pe- people, no one would ever take a breath. And yet Jesus agonized for each breath as he bore the full weight of the wrath of God. On the cross, you see, Jesus was forsaken. One scholar I read this week put it this way. And now when he cried, God had closed his ears. The crowd had not stopped jeering. The demons had not stopped taunting. The pain had not abated. Instead, every circumstance bespoke the anger of God. And there was no countering voice. This time. No word came from heaven to remind him that he was God's son and greatly loved. No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence and ministry. No angel came to strengthen him. No redeemed sinner bowed to thank him. He was alone. He was forsaken. The one who for all eternity had known only perfect communion with the Father and with the Spirit, in that moment in his humanity, knew the pain of the loss of that intimacy with God. I think if we spent the entire year looking at every passage we could find, trying to look at that reality from every possible angle, we could not get it. Because we know what it's like to have not had relationship with God and to gain it. But we will never know what it is to have had it and lose it. And Jesus did that so that we never will. We go through things in life that are hard, suffering that is deep, that rattles us down to our core. And none of us ought to ever look at another and say, well, yours isn't as bad as mine. Because all of our experience with hardship is different. It's intimate. It's personal. And yet, In those deepest of struggles, we need never doubt the love of God. Because look at what he did. That we might be united back with God. It's amazing. That, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hope as we enter coming days into Christmas that as we think about the cute, cuddly little baby, we'll understand that the whole reason the baby matters is because of this man who died forsaken. Now, Mark went on to tell us in this paragraph He highlights, if you will, two specific results of Jesus' cry. 
There are many more, of course, but Mark wants us to see in particular these two things. He wants us to notice the tearing of the curtain and the confession of the centurion. There's something about those things that point to the particular significance of what the cry on the cross accomplished. Let's look first at the curtain. If you let your eyes glance back over verses 37 and 38, you'll see that Jesus cried out one last time, and then something titanic happened. Jesus was crucified on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem, and yet on that hill, when he breathed his last, back down the hill, through the gates, inside the walls of Jerusalem, and inside the temple, something happened. In that temple, there was a curtain, a huge curtain, A curtain separated a place called the holy place from the most holy place. And that curtain, when Jesus died after he cried, that curtain was torn, split. It's as though a sword struck it from the top and seared it all the way down. I recognize it's odd for couple hundred people to get together on a Sunday and talk about a curtain being torn. But friends, that moment is the moment in which you and I gained access to God that we never had before. Because that curtain, you see, separated people from the place where God most fully dwelled. People could get near God but people couldn't be all the way in with God because of their sin. That curtain, you see, in one sense, was a protector. It protected people from being in the presence of God in which they would meet the wrath of God. And yet, in another sense, it was a reminder of separation. You can get near, but you can't come all the way in. Close but not close enough. That's all God's people had ever known. God's near, but God's not in. Because Jesus took the wrath we deserve, because our sin was placed on him, and his righteousness was placed on us, that curtain was torn, meaning we now have full, complete, permanent access to God. This is, of course, the good news of the gospel, that we who are separated far off have been brought near. This paragraph is here to teach us that Jesus is the Son of God who died forsaken for sinners. And what is the first result of that death that Mark wants us to know? It's that you, friend, you, Christian, you, brother and sister, you, church, come right on in. Come enjoy the presence of God without fear of condemnation. 
you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we want to thank you so much for coming, for considering Christianity. You're attending on the very best possible of Sundays because we're talking about what Christianity is at its very core, what the scriptures from beginning to end tell us. The Bible is the true story of God who created people for fellowship with him, who lost it by virtue of their choice, their choice to rebel, but who can gain it back, not by virtue of attending church lots of times, of stopping lots of bad habits, of starting lots of good ones. All of those are good things, but insufficient. Because only God could tear the curtain. That's why it tore from top to bottom. Only God could forgive and welcome us back in. And he has. Friend, if you recognize your need for God, yet your distance from him, and if you believe that this event did happen, Jesus did die in your place and rose again in victory, then you too can be welcomed into that for which you were created. This is the message of Christianity. But what about that confession? The curtain being rent was not the only result of Jesus' cry and death. Mark tells us something else. It's worth looking at again. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him, that's Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last. Those are clunky words, but it points to something significant. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, I wish we could have started early this morning, coffee and donut and Bible in hand, and started at Mark 1.1 and just read aloud together all the way through to this moment. Because if we did, here's what you would notice, something that's impossible to tell because we've spent an entire year getting to here. This is the first time in the entire Gospel of Mark that a human being has uttered the words, the confession. That man is God's son. The father said it in Jesus' baptisms. The demons confessed it. The priest mockingly, jokingly said it. But this is the first time. The first time one has said in a confessional way, surely Jesus is God's son. Mark has intentionally built, 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 built. Pow! He's been asking us all along, who do you say Jesus is? And the first person to confess Jesus in the fullest way is not a religious professional. He's not an insider in any way, shape, or form. He's not one who grew up with the book and never knew any different. He's not someone who followed the rules and earned his access. 
Now this guy is a Roman soldier for crying out loud. One of the people who had Jesus killed. He may have struck the nails, literally. He is the first one to confess the crucified Christ is the Son of God. This is amazing. Notice that there's something about the forsakenness, about the cry, about the death of Jesus that revealed who he is. It's only when we see Jesus on the cross that we come to see Jesus fully as the Son of God. And I love the, the, the aroma this presents to us of the sweetness of the gospel of grace, that it's a soldier who first confesses the Christ to be the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God who died forsaken for sinners. I want to encourage you this morning, Christian, beloved, look to the cross. Look to the cross over and over and over and over because it's there that you see most clearly who Jesus is and you understand most deeply the love of God for you. The character, the work, the love, the identity of Jesus is seen most clearly as he cried out and gave himself up in the greatest act of substitution ever committed. Now in our remaining few minutes, look with me, if you would, at the next paragraph. It says in verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And he was in Galilee. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he would have already died. And summoning this centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead... He granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud. Taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now verses 40 and 41 function to set up the encounter we'll read about next week. They're sort of a preview. So I won't say much about these dear women now, but I think we must notice that there is no male disciple of Jesus listed here. They're all women. While Luke focuses from beginning to end, 
One of his emphases, his themes, is the inclusion of women with Jesus. Mark doesn't have that point of emphasis. In fact, this is the first time these three women are mentioned. But apparently they've been disciples for a long, long time. And these three women will play an infamous role in the history of the resurrection of Jesus. One of the ways we see their inclusion is that they will become the witnesses of the resurrection. I look forward to talking with you about that next week. When Jesus died, it was very important that his body be removed from the cross for two reasons. Number one, the Sabbath was coming and they would not have been allowed to move him. So he would have hung there rotting for an entire day. But additionally, the Old Testament's clear that no corpse was to remain unburied or untombed overnight. And so we would have expected that those closest to Jesus, the, the disciples who had followed him, who pledged themselves to be with him into his death and their own, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, where are they? Well, they're not there. But these women are. And yet those women would have had no ability, no social standing through which to do anything about this. And so Joseph did. And there's this little detail about Joseph. He was a member of the council. What does that mean? Well, he's one of the very 70 one of the members of the Sanhedrin who called for Jesus' death. Now, whether he disagreed with their decision, he voted against it, or whether it was like the centurion that in the death of Jesus he came to see who he really was, we won't know this side of heaven. But as he looked on Christ in the victorious death of the crucifixion, then something about that moved him to take great risk to himself and request the body of Jesus. Apparently, he had recently had a family tomb cut nearby into a cliff. And so he got permission, got Jesus' body, and very quickly moved him to that tomb. This is a beautiful hinting or foreshadowing of what will come in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, namely, that those who follow Jesus are very, very often, almost always, not who we would expect. In the span of just a few verses, Marcus said, look, here's a Roman soldier. Look, here's a group of women. Look. Here's one of the ones who called for the crucifixion. Those are the only ones mentioned. There's a beautiful picture here. What a bunch those were. Look around. What a bunch we are. Jesus is the Son of God who died forsaken, 
for you, for us, for everyone who will ever cry out to him because he cried out for them. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Would you take a moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, to thank him for yourself? Father, we praise you for that day, that day in which Jesus, in pure love, gave himself that we might have full access to you. We thank you today for the cross. We thank you for telling us so plainly its meaning in the cry and then showing it in the curtain and inviting us in, in the confession. May this deeper look at the death and the dying of Jesus propel us to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.